Welcome to another episode of the All of Life podcast. I'm your host, Nate Claiborne, and today I have the pleasure of sitting with Dr. Nicholas Reed. How are we doing, Nick? I'm doing just fine. Actually, I didn't ask you if I could call you Nick. Can I? Uh, you can. I prefer to be called Nicholas, but... Okay, I'll call you Nicholas then. I, I just <laughs> jump straight to this. No, show. no, it's fine. It happens all the time. Okay. I'm not offended. You're not offended. Perfect. <laughs> uh, so you are a professor here at RTS, and you teach Old Testament, among other things... Yeah, yeah. I teach Old Testament and Ancient or Eastern Studies, which just means that I teach various electives related to the languages and cultures surrounding the Bible, particularly the Old Testament. Okay. Um, I feel like I have a friend that took... You teach, have you taught Akkadian? Yeah. You've taught Akkadian? I've taught it a few times. Okay. I feel like I had I have a friend that was in that elective at one point, and I was like, man, you're going... You're going deep because you're already taking Hebrew. Now you're adding Akkadian on top of that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the value of it is it, it, it's a great way. Language is a great way to expose people to the culture. Mm. Um, it's a really great window into the context in which the Old Testament was written. Yeah, because if you understand the language, it helps you understand the worldview, the way of the way the different cultures thought about things. Yeah, and, and gives you access to their own products. It gives you access to resources. And even if you can't translate it on your own, you'll know where to look. You'll also be uh, given the opportunity to have uh, more proficient language skills that will be applicable to other Semitic languages like Hebrew or Aramaic. Mm. Yeah, and so this is, this is actually part of why we're here to talk today. So thinking about, I would think if you, if you understand some of these other languages, it... I mean, there are English translations, but it opens up your ability to read documents that were written around the time of the Bible, but are not the Bible. And then now you have a way to compare and contrast what we find in some of the biblical stories with what you find in some of the other cultures' stories. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's one of the first things that I want to encourage people to start doing is whenever they come across an alleged uh, comparison with the Bible is go and try to find a reputable translation of that and read the text yourself and look for similarities and look for differences. Because sometimes when we're interpreting text, and this is true of any discipline, it's not just the Bible, uh, we sometimes can make the background the foreground or mm -hmm. a lens through which we read everything. Uh, this happened with Neo-Assyrian treaties, actually. Neo-Assyrian treaties were pr predominantly read against the Bible and not independent of themselves. Mm. And um, it just kind of obscures our understanding of text sometimes. So sometimes background can help illuminate a text. And sometimes background can distract from the meaning of a text. And I think it takes um, some maturity and wisdom and also gaining some skills in order to make those decisions. Yeah. I would, I would definitely agree. And so hopefully today you can help our listeners. We're, we're starting a new series on Exodus at New City, which we, you and I talked about off air. So we want to kind of jump into um, what is useful to understand about the ancient Near East background as it relates to the book of Exodus. And so it, it, as I, we kind of, we've been on this journey through the Pentateuch, we've gone through different series in Genesis, and it's mostly just been focused on understanding Abraham's story. And now we've, we've got this nation of Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt, and now we're understanding their story, but we're understanding their story as it intersects with Egyptian culture, Egyptian mythology, and then just a broader ancient Near East background. So I know that, that was a lot just kind of right off the top, but if we were to jump in, what's helpful for, um, for us to really understand about just Egypt as a culture maybe around that place and time. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting you, you bring up Genesis because the book of Exodus actually begins with the word and, mm -hmm. and then it continues with almost an exact quote from one of the latter chapters 
of Genesis. And so it's really a continuation of the story that's gone before. In many ways, it's, uh, Genesis is a prologue to Exodus. Exodus is so foundational for understanding the Bible. It's drawn upon throughout Scripture as a paradigm for salvation. Yeah. Uh, that, that sort of trickles into even when Jesus and Luke talks at the Transfiguration, he is discussing his Exodus. And there have been numerous books that have been written about echoes of Exodus through Scripture. So you're coming to an essential part of Scripture that's mm-hmm. very foundational for understanding what it means to belong to the living God. And the revelation of His divine name, the giving of His commandments and His statutes, the building of the tabernacle to establish a presence among the people with mediation. Uh, all of these things come to the fore in the book of Exodus. And as you said... Uh, this is this happens in the context of needing to be delivered out of slavery in Egypt. When you when you look at the book of Exodus, um, you'll see influences of various words that are connected to Egypt. Um, so Egyptian words being brought over. Um, there's also um, interaction with a belief system or a religious system of of uh, Egypt, ancient Egypt. So the plagues are directly. Um, directly taking on the gods of Egypt. Uh, I've sort of described it to my, my students as like, you, you know, the first part of Exodus, you're sort of wondering, can God act or mm-hmm. redeem his people in Egypt? Yeah. And so you're asking this, asking this question, which we know to be yes, but if you try to read it with some suspense and understand it as it unfolds, you, you begin to ask this question, can God work outside of the, the bounds of the land that he's going to give to Abraham? Because uh, many deities were considered regional uh, in that time. And, uh, and so the answer is a resounding yes. But then there's a shift in the narrative. Uh, when you get to Sinai, the question's no longer, can God deliver his people from the Egyptians? It's can he deliver the people from himself? Mm-hmm. And they stand at the foot of Sinai. And so it's, it's fascinating that you see that the power of God on display in relation to the gods of Egypt through the plagues, for example, even attacking Pharaoh's uh, household. Uh, but then as you come to Sinai, you also realize what it means to stand before uh, as a sinner before a holy God. Yeah, that is a, it's an interesting contrast in the change that happens once they get to Sinai and how things, uh, not to spoil the second half of Exodus that we'll get to next fall, but just the, the way the people respond in that situation that then sets things off on a trajectory that culminates later in Numbers and Deuteronomy, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it, when we think about this, this big story, this paradigmatic story that we have in Exodus. Um, how is it, it, are there similar stories in the ancient world? Is that complete? I know that in some ways it's unique, but this idea of a God delivering his people. Yeah, I mean, th- there are some similarities, like the birth narrative uh, with Moses has been compared to a late text with Sargon, uh, which has a similar birth narrative on the very broad strokes. Um, so there are some similarities, but the, the, the singular claims, that's what's so unique, I think, about the book of Exodus. I mean, you can come across uh, laws about not murdering, um, yeah. not stealing. Uh, you can come across case laws, like if, a, if an ox gores, if it's a known gore, and something like that. But you don't really come across uh, the exclusive claims and other texts. The, the sort of worship of the singular God, not making the images, the, the bearing God's name well. Uh, as actually, um, people say, don't take the Lord's name in vain. Uh, a better understanding of that passage is actually, his name has been placed upon you and you bear it. It's the Hebrew verb, nasa. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it, it's that God's placed his name upon you. Wherever you go, that name is you, you bear it with you. It's just like when we as Christians go anywhere, we're representing Christ. We're taking Christ with us. And, um, and, and, and it's fascinating too. Like, so you have those, those, those commonalities like murder or, uh, adultery or theft, but in terms of dealing with the heart, um, it's really unique. I can't think of any other place where you're, um, not to covet, uh, mm. in, in my reading, uh, which is fascinating. I think cause Paul actually makes a big deal about that. I would not have known what it means not to covet if it had not said thou shalt not covet. Right. Yeah. And I think that's really the hermeneutic by which we get Jesus sort of then talking about thou shalt not kill. That's what's been said. But I tell you, if you're angry in your heart, you're guilty of breaking that commandment. And so that internalization of what it means to be a follower of God and the exclusive claims, I think, are, are really unique. And then that has implications for our relationship and community. If your God is my God and my God is your God, then your story is part of my story. And part of my story is your story because we are, we are rooted in a singular deity, a singular God. Um, so I will be your God and you'll be my people. That, that sort of claim of belonging then connects us in a way that uh, polytheistic belief system doesn't really, because if you have personal gods, then, you know, what happens to me or what happens to you may not really reflect my theology a whole lot, because it could be an, a situation where your God is not protecting you or you've fallen out of favor through mm-hmm. uncleanness with your God, and so you're left open to attack. But if we, if we share a common God, you know, in a personal relationship, but in community, then there are implications for that, that we, we could spend the rest of this time talking about. Yeah. I feel like we, we could, we could draw a lot out there, but I, I like what you brought up with, with the polytheistic element, cause it's Egypt is polytheistic. And so as unified as they might be in some sense, they're disunified in another sense. If there's different deities that I have a preference for this one and you know, my neighbor over there prefers this one. And I know there's, I have a rough understanding of history of ancient Egypt, but just that there's, there would be different centers, just different cities built in honor of this specific God. And then the worship in that city is devoted to that God, but the city, you know, farther down the Nile is not, they're devoted to this God and yet somehow they're able to kind of hold things together. But maybe if we, if we think about the history of ancient Egypt, just as the dynasties that happened, they did see some of that disintegration over time. Yeah, over time they do. Yeah, and you see it in Mesopotamia as well, um, where, where, where people are, you know, de- the belief system changes and evolves over time, and, and deities become more significant or less significant depending on uh, just where they are historically or depending on the influence of the rulers or whatever other circumstances are occurring. So with that in mind, when we think about the plagues, we, we won't get into too much detail here, but there is, there is sort of a cosmic warfare element going on there. Those are not random. God's just doing miraculous things to shock and awe the Egyptians. There's something to the specific. The Niles may be the obvious one. Like if that's the life source of the country and it turns to blood, yeah. that's a problem. Right, right. Exactly. These aren't random, just magic tricks. Uh, which is which is interesting. I mean, there's there's a point to them all, and um, you can you can look them up, or you, I'm sure you'll show resources to uh, mm-hmm. your listeners where the various comparisons, specific comparisons, are, are made. But it's everything from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the cattle to 
um, yeah, the, the, the sun shining with the darkness, for example, all of those things. And then it's interesting, too, how the distinction occurs where, you know, in the land of Goshen, uh, the hail doesn't fall, for example. Yeah. Uh, and so God's ability to bring judgment but also distinguish is, I think, a, a central theme that is traced elsewhere in the Bible where salvation does come through judgment. And you see that at the Red Sea, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is another paradigmatic. I mean, there's there's some precedent for it, but the passing through the waters, you could connect that forward to baptism. You can connect it to all sorts of things, right? Yeah, even even going back to the Jordan. Yeah, Joshua oh, yeah, yeah. solidifying his leadership um, and, and, and taking that back to um, the, the flood narrative with, with Noah. So he, he comes on the Yevashah, the, the dry land. Uh, so salvation, and you really, I mean, take it back to creation where the, the land appears mm-hmm. uh, and that's necessary for us to inhabit uh, the earth. And so, it, yeah, it's... it's um, it's God creating a people for himself. Yeah, I guess we go from a family predominantly in the book of Genesis to now we have a people with the, this intention of them being a kingdom of priests. It doesn't quite get there in the Old Testament, at least. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You, you really do have the themes of nationhood beginning to sort of develop in the book of Exodus. But it's a, it, it's a nation, but it's, it, as you brought out earlier, it's a totally unique nation because it's a single God that's able to unite them because it's the one story drawing them all together. But then the matters of the heart are unique compared to just other ancient Near East uh, backgrounds. Um, and then even the, the way he's, they're invited up onto the mountain, right? I, I feel like that's... I don't say I feel just they're supposed to come up and meet God and they're afraid. And so they stay at the base of the mountain and Moses alone goes up. Yeah. Well, it, they're actually told uh, originally in 19 not to go up. And then he's in. He, so then um, elders will go up and representatives will go up. But the people in, in, in by and large are not allowed to go up. And it's fascinating. I always do this this thing with my, my students. I'm like their desire not for a mediator because they say they hear the thunder, they hear the lightning. And then they say, don't let God speak to us. You speak to us, Moses, mm-hmm. lest we die. And I always ask students like, okay, is this good or bad? Um, cause we're always trying to make moral judgments in the old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's fascinating. Most, you know, students are typically divided. They're like, you know, they, this is reverence. This is good. Uh, this is bad. They don't understand what grace is or God's desire for relationship. But it's interesting when, um, when Moses recounts it in Deuteronomy, he says they're right in all that they've said. And so really at that moment at Sinai, you're seeing the need for a mediator. And um, Moses then serves as, as that initial answer to that, that as a type then, of course, to Christ. Yeah, because he's able to represent the people to God. Right. But he's also representing God to the people, and it sets up this... Uh, archetypal, I mean, you said type, but just this archetypal, what a mediator is. And we see, we can trace it all the way forward to Christ through different, different peoples. So we're going to take a bit of a left turn here. I think as we, as we think about the Exodus story, it might raise some questions about archeology span and just what we can or can't know about the Exodus story. It seems like a big deal. If there was a large group of people coming out of Egypt, Uh, we have a lot of records of Egyptian history, and so I think people might be curious about how archaeology impacts our understanding of the Exodus. And so maybe you could speak to that just in big picture terms. Yeah, I think the first thing to understand is that archaeology is, is a scientific discipline. And it is meant to tell us about the past 
insofar as the past left remains. Mm. Um, so there are limitations to archaeology. If you, you know, if the building we were in was burned to the ground and someone else built a structure and that was burned to the ground and someone else built a structure and that was burned to the ground and then you sort of look through the remains, then you would have to sort of then try to determine how much life, social life, history, could you really reconstruct based on that, based on the shard of this or the bit of that or the lump of coal. And um, that's not to say that, that archaeology is not significant. There have been some fascinating finds. I actually find it really, really interesting. I love, I love archaeology. Um, but it's just helpful to understand that the task is really to reconstruct history based on the remains that history has left for us. Mm. And um, so that's, that's the narrow question of archaeology. Um, there's, there's not any sort of empirical evidence from outside of the Bible that sort of says, ah, here we, here we have definitively the Israelites as they were moving out. Um, but that's not to say that, that the, the story doesn't line up with, you know, plausible structures. Mm-hmm. Um, you could ask questions like, uh, James Hoffmeyer's done this in his book on Sinai and as well as his book on, on um, the Exodus, where, you know, could, for example, someone like Joseph... Um, a, a Semite raised rise to power and and have an Egyptian burial, and we have attestations of that. Mm-hmm. Could someone like Moses actually grow up in Pharaoh's household? Well, we actually have attestations of Semites doing uh, that as well. We would expect to see language influence, and we have attestations of that as well. And so, when you look at plausible structures, it then really depends on okay, so it does correlate or or you know, it, it does relate to what we would expect to see. We see it interacting with the belief system. Um, but at the end of the day, we just don't have any definitive archaeological evidence or an inscription where they sort of say, well, that was lousy. We just lost a whole bunch of people. Yeah. Um, or, man, what happened to my son? And I lament about that. There's yeah. just not... There's... A relief showing the, yeah. the Red Sea crossing from right. the Egyptian point of view. Yeah. Like... We, we have reliefs of, of them making bricks and stuff like that. We don't know who's making the bricks, right? But... Um, um, there, there, there are things that we can see, but then there are just there are aspects that aren't attested um, in the material remains that are left to us so far. Yeah, well, I think you bring up an important an important way of thinking of it with the plausibility structures. Just if we're thinking about the things that happen in Exodus, they're all plausible given other things we've discovered in the ancient Near East. It's not as if, I mean, there are miracles. We don't want to discount the miraculous divine intervention. Uh, but just the basic contours of the story, it's not radically different than other stories. And there's precedence for those things, even if we don't have, oh, this was Moses's, <laughs> you know, some, Moses's staff. We know we have it and we can date it to this place in this time. Right, right. You know, and, I, and it's, it's interesting, too. Um, there was a shift around the 1980s. Now, I mean, you know, it probably happened earlier, but there's it's part of it is the way in which you write history. So you take. You take objective evidence, but there's always, when you start to get to the matter of interpretation, that's more subjective, right? Mm. So the story I build out of the remains that I find or the things that I haven't found yet, then that's more subjective. That's where I'm trying to create plausible arguments according to how I view the world, how I view uh, what we've found and my understanding of history and all of those sort of things. And so it's interesting. You can look at like a really major scholar uh, in uh, archaeology um, around 1950s, 60s, and 70s, 
And, he, and he, he's saying sort of like virtually no one questions the historicity of the Exodus. By 1980, you know, you can begin to see works. And this is happening before. I'm, I'm not giving precise dates, but mm-hmm. I have particular books in mind. Um, you know, you begin to see there's no evidence whatsoever. It probably didn't even happen. Uh, and so it, that's really um, uh, the rise of the hermeneutic of suspicion, mm-hmm. where you're, unless it's confirmed, you're suspicious of it. Uh, yeah. And so... But, but with this, too, I think it's important to understand that, that patience is a virtue. There have been numerous things in scholarship that, that we had no assertions of outside of the Bible. Um, and people thought it was made up in the Bible. And then eventually we learn more and isn't, we find... Isn't the famous one the Hittites? The Hittites would they, they be one. Just like they were they're <clears throat> all over the Bible and there's like no evidence... Tiglath-Pileser would be an example of okay, a king. A um, you know, he was a Syrian king, and now we know a lot about him. I, I, even camels in the Bible, um, you know, sort of uh, camels um, being domesticated and being owned by Abraham was treated as an anachronism. Now we, we have lots of evidence that, that camels were domesticated much earlier. These things tend to move earlier anyway, mm-hmm. uh, as we understand more. It's just important, I think, to understand that archaeology and... Uh, Egyptology and Assyriology and all of these historical disciplines are are fields that are moving in a direction and and that direction toward greater knowledge right and so it's a process yeah just because we don't know or understand something now doesn't mean we won't know or understand something in the future yeah and I think you bring out a, a good point too that the track record has been things showing up in favor of what the Bible story, not things showing up that definitively disprove something. So we might not have evidence of definitive evidence of Israel and Egypt, but we don't have definitive evidence that they never could have been in Egypt because that's impossible. Right. Right. And, and we do know of a Semitic presence there for sure. Yeah. So we already know of that. Yeah. You can maybe help us with this. I think one of the things that was associated with some of the suspicion around the Exodus was the number of people that needed to be involved. And if you read, it looks like it's going to be 600,000 fighting men, which would mean like 3 million people. It's like, well, 3 million people would have left a trace. Yeah. Yeah. Once you, yeah, you're, you're sort of inching towards uh, numbers in particular, as you Mm. start to think about the censuses and there are different ways that those are understood. Uh, there, there are some newer theories about, uh, how you even understand the word for thousand. If it's pointed differently, it could be uh, smaller groups or units than a thousand, which would reduce the numbers. I think that's what Um, I read. It could be clan or it could be mm -hmm. unit, like a fighting unit. And so now we're talking about 60,000. It's significantly less. 600,000. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so that's that's one of the things. I mean, I think that the jury's still out on that. You know, is that a strong argument? I think that needs to be investigated more. Um, but there are still there are still things we're we're learning. You know, as we try to understand what's going on. Yeah, but I think we could we could say at the end of the day for our listeners, we're reading the Bible as Christians and we're reading the Bible as people of faith. And so, the tr- the truth or the historicity of the Bible is not dependent on some outside source proving it to be correct. Yeah, I mean, and and I think it's important to understand, I would even go farther and say, you know, that like reading the Bible as Christian scripture is a legitimate academic discipline. Uh, I think sometimes we feel like we have to apologize about that or shy away from that. Uh, It's a legitimate um, discipline. And so the context is not just 
ancient Eastern background or Egypt, uh, it's canonical context. It's the relationship to Genesis we mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. It's how it fit, fits inside of the Pentateuch and what is, what is going on there. Um, it's, we understand Exodus against the law, the prophets, and the writings. We understand Exodus through New Testament understanding, and then we uh, have that in dialogue with church history. And so uh, we, we read and understand and, um, and, and exegete Scripture as Christians, and, and it's part of that larger tr- tradition and uh, even context, I think, that is important to keep in view. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to close out and to just kind of remind us what we're doing as we study Exodus this fall in our Bible study, as we hear it preached to us on Sunday morning. I appreciate you taking the time, Dr. Reed, sit down, Nicholas, to talk with us about these things and draw on your expertise. And I look forward to being able to sit down with you again next time. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you.